Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome back to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. It's been over two years since I released a new episode of Power Hour. I think I did one at the beginning of 2017, but that was actually about the Human Flourishing Project, which has since become my other podcast, which I hope you listen to. But I'm really appreciative of the fact that people are bugging me all the time about when is Power Hour going to come back? I loved Power Hour. Where's Power Hour? So here's Power Hour. We are back, and I say we because at least for this first episode and hopefully for many more to come if it goes well, I have some of my colleagues on the call. Uh, The colleagues are Don Watkins, who's our Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress. I'll introduce him in a minute. Uh, But I don't even think he was working for us full-time when I last had a power hour, although he's been helpful in many ways to us for a long time. And he and I have been friends and colleagues for a long time. And he was very helpful with Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, among other projects. And then we have Stefan Henna, who has worked with me for a long time as well, and has been part of CIP, Center for Industrial Progress, for a long time. And the the genesis of bringing them on and even bringing back the podcast is that I've been working on the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0, which that's probably news to some of you. Although if you're on our mailing list, which you can get on at industrialprogress.com, then it won't be news to you. But I've been working on that. And more broadly, I've been working on a lot of different research and thinking over the past several years, some of it for public consumption, but a lot of it for the different speaking and consulting work that I do. And as part of that work, I've built up a really good research and content infrastructure because Stefan and Don are helping all the time with different content. And we have lots and lots of internal discussions that are interesting. And I frequently feel like, wow, people would really like to hear these discussions and they're not hearing them and maybe we should share them at some point. So this is now some point. I've decided, well, let's let's just try on a weekly basis, at least for a month or two and see how it goes to talk about energy like Power Hour has always done, but to focus on what are the what do we think are the most important topics in the energy world this week. And sometimes it'll be something that's hot in the news. Sometimes it'll be something that just we think is really important, whether it's on our mind because it's part of the new book or just because it's something that we see over and over people are getting wrong or maybe hopefully people are getting something right. But with energy, it's usually more people getting things wrong that need to be clarified. So I thought, yeah, let's let's try this new format. So what we're going to try to do is have, I'm saying about five topics a week. I think we'll have five topics today. And sometimes I'll initiate the topic. Sometimes one of the others will initiate the topic. And we'll just talk about uh, what we're thinking on it, why we think it's important, what we think people should do about it, and that kind of thing. So just to make sure everyone is is still here since it took us a few minutes to get set up. Uh, Don, are you here? I'm here, Alex. Hey, and uh, Stefan, are you here? I'm here as well. All right. Sounds good. So let's get started. The, um, the first topic I want to talk about, I'm going to call why Bill Gates is a much better energy thinker than Elon Musk. So... Uh, to give you some of the context, uh, my friend and colleague Eric Dennis sent me a month or so ago, maybe a video, a link to a video uh, that Bill Gates, which was of Bill Gates getting interviewed at Stanford University on the, the general topic of energy, energy innovation, and there was a particular clip, and. I was so excited by this clip because Gates said something that I think is, it's fundamentally almost obvious, but it's almost nobody is talking about it. It has to do with the, the fundamental problems with intermittent fuel sources, namely solar power and wind power. And part of my context here is that in researching the new version of the moral case for fossil fuels, I've been looking at, okay, what what is the current state of intermittent power? 
are there fundamental improvements that I that I should be aware of? Uh, have storage problems been solved? And just the more I think about it and look into it, the more the, the same fundamental problems are still there. And yet what's happening is that people are just talking themselves into all sorts of, I don't know, they just have these, they're just, they're somehow trying to persuade themselves that it's a really good idea to try to rely on the sun and the wind with everything we know about how intermittent they are, about how infrequently they're available, about all the places they're not available. There's just these general things of, oh yeah, we'll just have storage. And it's it's in this very vague and abstract way. And just my own thinking has been, this thinking is horrible and I have my own way of thinking about it, which I'll share a little bit, but it was really cool to hear Gates just talk in a straight way about this. And I'll, I'll quote him in a second, but I should say Bill Gates definitely has a much more negative view of carbon dioxide than I do. That is, he he is much, much more concerned than I than I am that carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere rising are an existential crisis that are worth devoting a lot of resources to um, uh, to lessen. But what he's what I really appreciate uh, about him is is he is looking at it from a human perspective, and uh, I would call it a human flourishing perspective. And part of the evidence of that is that he's really looking at it from the perspective of what are cost-effective ways that we can lower CO2 levels, or at least lower, at least initially lower CO2 emissions that are going to minim- have a minimal negative impact on people's lives. And he's got this, this recognition that energy has a fundamentally positive impact on people's lives. And for somebody who comes from software, this is pretty impressive, just that he he recognizes in such a deep way that access to abundant energy, I would call it as that's the technology that that powers every other technology, that that makes everything that amplifies every human capability, makes every aspect of human flourishing better. And he really recognizes this. And therefore he's very, very focused from the perspective of CO2 reduction on how do we find a form of power that can reliably get us cheap, plentiful energy. And he's really focused on that. And in part because of that focus, he is really, really suspicious of these proposals for intermittent power. And he's very, very pro using nuclear power, as am I, whether CO2 is an issue or not. I'm a very, very pro-liberating or decriminalizing that form of power. So here's, here's the section. The, the interviewer says, so a lot of people are very optimistic, as you know, with wind and solar. The renewables costs are coming down. The battery costs are coming down. You think that's enough? And then Bill Gates jumps in quickly and says, no, that is so disappointing. I mean, really, Vaclav, and he's referring referring to Vaclav Schmil, who's an energy guru. Uh, Vaclav yesterday, he said, okay, here's Tokyo, 27 million people. You have three days of a cyclone basically every year. It's 22 gigawatts rates over over three days. Tell me what battery solution is going to sit there and provide that power. I mean, let's not joke around. You are multiple orders of magnitude, you know, $100 per kilowatt hour. That's nothing. That doesn't solve the reliability problem. And then he adds, and remember, electricity is 25% of greenhouse gas emissions. Whenever we came up with this term clean energy, I think it screwed up people's minds because now they don't understand. And I'll read a little bit more. I was at this conference in New York. I won't name it. And all these financial guys got on stage and said, oh, we're going to rate companies in terms of their CO2 output. And we're going to say this company puts out a lot of CO2 and financial markets are magical. And all of a sudden the CO2 will stop being emitted. And I was like, okay, how are you going to make steel? You guys on Wall Street, do you have something in your desks that makes steel? What? Where's the fertilizer? Cement? Plastic? Where's it going to come from? Do planes fly through the sky because of some number you put on a spreadsheet? So the badness of this so-called finance is the solution. I just don't get that. There is no substitute for how the industrial economy runs today. And the paradigmatic country is India, 
will India pay a premium price to have materials to build buildings to get rid of slums? Will they pay a premium price for air conditioning? Basically, the answer is no. The voters there won't, and they probably shouldn't deny themselves when their greenhouse gas emissions per person is only a 20th of what the U.S. has already emitted. So there's there's a lot there. First thing I want to point out is just him recognizing how fundamental energy is to human flourishing. And notice how rare this is, even among energy gurus. I mean, for example, Elon Musk is a sort of energy guru, but his entire focus is let's not use fossil fuels and let's use solar. But it's it's all about what's wrong with energy as we use it. And it's not at all about what's right about energy's impact on life. And if you don't value the energy's impact on life, then you're not going to value the attributes of being cheap, plentiful, and reliable. And then this gets to Gates's other point, which is just so obvious, but nobody says it. So he just gives this example of um, you have a situation in Tokyo, but this occurs all kinds of places where for three days you have conditions where solar and wind, so these intermittent fuels, won't generate reliable energy. So they won't be a reliable fuel source. They won't even provide anything. And so then the question is, okay, where are you going to get power from during those days? And they're only, I mean, the the fundamental option is you need some continuous fuel source. You always need a continuous fuel source. So anytime you have an intermittent fuel source like solar and wind, it always needs life support from a continuous fuel source. Now, one continuous fuel source, and by far the most popular is some form of fossil fuel solution because that's a naturally stored form of energy that's relatively cheap to use, and so it can provide life support. But the problem is, not only are you still relying on the continuous fuel, that's not even the half of it, it's that you are using the continuous fuel source very inefficiently because with the way continuous fuel sources work, is the efficient way to use them tends to be in a in a relatively stable way, just like driving your car at 55 miles an hour, that's going to get you really good fuel economy, where a stop and go traffic gets you horrible fuel economy. And so what you're doing is, it's not just that the intermittent sources are dependent on the reliable sources, they're dependent on the extremely inefficient use of the reliable sources. So it's wrong to think of these intermittent sources as sources of energy themselves. They always need to be thought of as part of a process. And that process involves inefficiently using the reliable forms of energy. So it's a lot like using a, um, it's, it's a lot like if you say, well, we want to, let's just say Apple said, hey, we want to be politically correct. And therefore we're going to, and San Francisco has a homeless problem. Therefore we're just going to, we're going to have homeless people. Uh, we're going to have as much of our, um, let's say packaging done by homeless people as possible. And sure, they don't come in reliably. We don't know when they're going to come, uh, but we've got a certain rate for them. And so we're, we're going to somehow say that they're cheaper, but you can't just look at the cost of the homeless people. You have to look at the cost of the whole process that's actually going to manufacture your product. And in this case, they need constant life support from reliable, from reliable people and the reliable people doing the packaging or anything else. It's going to make them a lot less efficient to have to continually be working with these unreliable people. And this is very analogous to how energy works. Now, the the counter to this, which turns out to be even more crazy that Gates is really getting at, is storage. So people will say, oh, well, just storage. That's fine. Just storage. And and what Gates is doing that almost nobody else does is he's actually thinking of this in a realistic way. So I said that the intermittent source depends on a continuous fuel source. So that can be a naturally stored fuel like fossil fuels or nuclear, or it can be a continuous fuel source that man creates in the form of a in the form of a charged battery. But that turns out to be super, super hard. And he takes this example of you have this three-day cyclone where the intermittent things don't work. That means you have to build a um that you have to build a continuous fuel source that can handle that can provide energy for days and days and days, but that's almost never going to be used. It's never going to, it's almost never going to be used that, that much. You need it a few days a year to do that, but then most of the time you don't need 
that much storage. And Gates elsewhere in the interview says, so what's, what's your efficiency per kilowatt hour on that? The idea is if you have to completely massively overbuild this huge storage system just so that you can handle these extreme cases that will definitely happen and definitely need to be handled, then you just need to have this dramatically overbuilt system. And then you have to pay a huge amount of money for something that's almost never going to be used. So it's it's also a hugely inefficient um, it's also a hugely inefficient system. So one form of using intermittent sources is you're using fossil fuels or nuclear in a hugely inefficient way. But the other form is to use batteries in a hugely inefficient way. And this is why these intermittent sources always end up increasing the price um, on the grid. So that's that's my take. And what's what's notable is just that Gates is honest about this. And then nobody else talks about this. Uh, I'm just curious, Stefan, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, what I really liked about this is that Bill Gates starts with recognizing the dimension of the problem, which is huge. So uh, we are talking about, you know, uh, having over 80% of the uh, of world energy replaced um, as of today. And... Uh, he really thinks about how to make this happen. And so the, why he's involved in nuclear is because he recognizes that some huge uh, innovation has to take place to make that happen while taking into account that uh, the humans of the future will likely use more energy. So we want to get more prosperous. A lot of humans on the planet right now don't have, don't have remotely the amount of energy that you and I are enjoying. And uh, so when you look at something like the IPCC reports, they are just focusing on these renewables. And at the same time, they claim to be focused on something like this sustainable development goals as well. So, you know, bringing people out of poverty, bringing uh, electricity to people in rural areas in Africa and Asia, and so on. And he recognized that this is a huge problem. You can't just say, oh, we just have this alternative now, which is something that you hear a lot from, from the climate activists today and also from, the, from, the, from academia and the IPCC reports uh, recently. And I, I really like the thinking of first recognizing the reality of what do we have, what's the technological, uh, technological uh, possibility and what needs to happen. So he's allocating money with his foundation to an innovative uh, solution to that. That's a real solution. So if you care about CO2 and you believe that this is a catastrophe and the only way to deal with it is reducing the emission of CO2, then you need a really, really big solution to this problem of uh, energy. And I mean, you definitely should not be ruling out the obvious best way of doing it that we know of, which is uh, nuclear fission. Don, uh, anything occur to you when following the story? I mean, the only thing is to like, I really want to underscore the point that you've stressed about like energy as a process, because like as somebody who reads the news, I'm constantly bombarded with all of these different claims and studies that, you know, solar and wind are or are about to be cheaper. And if you look at them, inevitably what's going on is that they're not considering the whole process. And, you know, each study will leave out different things or make different sorts of assumptions. But at the end of the day, it's not taking seriously that what we're concerned with is the actual usable energy and the affordability of that energy instead slicing off a, a, a bit of the process in order to sell something that they're um, biased in support of. And so one thing that's that's come up when working on Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0 is just giving readers an even better framework for processing, no pun intended, these claims that they hear. And one one just mandate that I think we should have in our minds all the time is always seek the full context. And there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, dimensions of that. But one is when you're looking at energy, look at the full process. And that includes looking at the costs, the in, in this case, the economic costs of the full process. So when somebody just says, oh, solar panels are cheaper 
therefore um, we should have 100% solar. Just think a little bit about, well, does that does that really describe the whole process? And if, if you start looking at most energy reporting this way, you'll just quickly dis, uh, discover that it's it's dishonest, either dishonest or incompetent and therefore useless. And then you'll probably stop reading most of the energy news, which I think is a good idea generally. And then try to try to look at more enduring sources. All right, so we're uh, that's that's the Gates story, or at least at least part of that. And and definitely one other thing I thought of in comparison to Elon Musk. I mentioned how Musk doesn't sufficiently value energy when he talks, but I think the even bigger thing is that Musk. Musk has a really often has a really good way of thinking that he describes as thinking in first principles, and I, I think is probably better described as thinking in fundamentals, which is the he actually never carefully defines it, which is its own problem. But the idea is that in any context, he's looking at what are the fundamental drivers of an outcome, and if he's looking at cost. He looks at, okay, what are the fundamental drivers of, say, there's a story in the biography of him, like Elon Musk in the quest for a fantastic future. There's a story about how he thinks about aluminum. And I, and I haven't validated the details, but it makes sense schematically. And there was the cost of generating an all-aluminum body, and it was considered prohibitive. But when he looked at the fundamental inputs, he saw, well, actually, this shouldn't be prohibitive. There no, there's no law of physics that says that this is going to be prohibitive. But they're just the current practice is uneconomic, but there are obvious opportunities to improve the current practice. So that's a good example of he's thinking in terms of the fundamentals of it. He's not just looking at convention and what convention makes possible. But then if you're going to think about the fundamentals of solar, you need to think about the fundamental problem or challenge with intermittent fuel sources, which is that they always require life support from continuous fuel sources and that they require the inefficient use of those continuous fuel sources. So you have to factor that in. And Musk never even addresses that in any kind of, of serious way. And thus, when he's promoting solar and even batteries, it's, it's dramatically parasitical on the life support that's made possible by the fuel sources that he's, that he's op- opposing. So I would love to see, I would love to have a first principles discussion with Elon Musk about many things, but certainly about the drivers of the price of actual reliable energy delivered to the consumer and get him to grapple with these things. Because I I don't think he's living up to his own standards in this context. All right. Speaking of unreliable or intermittent energy, um, while we've been off the air, which has been over two years, there's a lot of things that have happened. One thing that's happened fairly recently is fuel tax protests in France. And uh, Stefan, you're not in France, you're in Germany, but I know you, uh, you've been following that. Uh, so what's, what's currently going on with that, those fuel tax protests? And, and what do you think is the significance? Uh, okay, so after the, the protests of what's now known as the Yellow uh, Vest movement in France, uh, so early in December, the French government decided that they wouldn't go ahead with the fuel tax uh, which was well. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Recap just what happened with the protest, because I don't know if any, if everyone has followed that itself. Certainly in the in the U.S., not everyone has followed it. Okay, so uh, earlier in 2018, uh, the French government uh, announced that it would add some uh, fuel tax to gasoline and diesel in France in order to uh, decrease the oil demand, which is part of the long term plan of the French government to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And uh, that sparked some uh, large-scale protests across France, particularly in France. Um, and, in Paris, uh, you mean? In Paris, yeah. Sorry. And uh, the, the uh, Yellow Vest movement uh, got its name from the high-visibility Yellow Vest that every... Uh, driver in France has to take with them in their car in case of an emergency. So uh, everyone had one. <laughs> that was that was probably useful. Uh, so, and, and these went on for several uh, days and weeks and got a lot of uh, attention in the media and thousands of protesters over a lengthy 
uh, time period uh, blocked traffic, and uh, part of it actually got a little violent. I think four people died. Uh, but so the result of that was that finally the French government uh, took down the proposal to add the tax to gasoline and diesel, which was around uh, 10 to 30 uh, cents on the gallon, uh, if I translate that correctly to, to American uh, money and uh, volume. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that in the U.S., that's that's definitely considered significant, but maybe, maybe you're planning on talking about this, but just part of the context that I see for this story is you have, you know, Paris, interestingly, as the site of the Paris Climate Accords, which are just considered the, the absolute moral paragon uh, guidelines for the way the world should be proceeding in terms of radically reducing CO2 emissions. So in terms of this fuel tax that was meeting a lot of opposition because it was, it was clearly harming people, how, like, did this, would this fuel tax by itself, like how close did this bring France or would this have brought France to meeting its Paris climate accord obligations? Uh, so, yeah. So you have to remember that in, in, in Europe in general, the fuel prices are significantly higher than in North America. So uh, this would have added something like 10, 15% or so, I believe, to the to the fuel price, which is significant, but it would probably not discourage everyone from driving to work. So it wouldn't even help with, uh, with the CO2 emissions from transportation on its own. And yet... Everyone, not everyone, but many French drivers noticed that this would be an enormous economic burden on them for little gain. So then, I mean, what, is, what does this tell us? I mean, so my, I'm curious if you agree with me, but I mean, my basic read is that people in Paris being the, you know, that's, that's the city that's most associated now with radical reductions in CO2 emissions, this is being promoted in line with our first story, at least the reference to the the people who are saying, oh, intermittent energy is just as cheap or cheaper. People are saying, oh, this is, yeah, there's no problem meeting these targets because actually solar and wind are pretty much cheaper. And it's, it's just, we're just a little bit backward and we're a little bit slow, but if we can get a nice kick from a, you know, uh, a Paris Climate Accords or an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I'll talk about her proposals later, then then we'll be fine. So we'll have cheap, plentiful, reliable, and renewable energy, and then, you know, everything will be great. And yet here, a tiny step in that direction uh, is is actually causing obvious suffering. So what do you make of that? Well, let me jump in here for a second because I had a thought on that, which is, so, uh, you know, there's this whole narrative that we're going to have all of these climate restrictions inevitably and that therefore, you know, there's, we're going to talk about when we get to the divestment movement, the idea that all of the assets, you know, owned by oil and gas and coal companies are going to stay under the ground and are going to be valueless. But at least in this instance and in other instances, I mean, there's a whole debate in Canada and in Australia, when people really directly experience the costs of these climate restrictions, they, they're very, they're not politically feasible, even in places that regard it as vitally important to quote, oppose climate change. And so uh, virtually every kind of future assessment about the inevitability of these climate restrictions, I think, is at least thrown into question. And um, I think that it, it, one thing that it is doing is it's informing the kind of strategies that the green movement and that climate activists are proposing. And so, um, you know, w- when we talk about the Green New Deal, I think part of why that's so po- popular is that it's a, it's a recognition that when people are faced with taxes in the name of fighting climate and like individuals are facing those taxes directly and they can measure them in the context of their lives, what it'll mean for my, my gas bill each week uh, in order to quote fight climate. Um, 
people do not like it and it's not politically realistic and it's not politically popular. Uh, Stefan, I, I want to jump into divestment, but Stefan, do you have any final thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. So in addition to my, my effect research, I also have to read a lot of commentary and what you get from, from activists who are promoting this kind of policy is just, it's a matter of political will. You know, the technology is there. We can do it. We might actually save some money on, on the energy. And then it's just a matter of political will. And uh, so the drivers of France uh, tend to disagree is what I take from it. Yeah. And there, and so this is another, just one final thought on this is this is just one of infinite reasons why it's good to have a free society where people have to prove their economic ideas instead of imposing them on you, because it's, it's very easy to predict that, oh yeah, of course, if we just mandate a hundred percent solar and wind or 50% solar and wind, it'll all work out. But it, things usually don't work out. Most predictions are wrong. Either they're totally wrong. They, they, sometimes the thing is just totally unworkable, or sometimes it's two to three times more expensive. And when that's somebody's private idea, then just they and their investors lose the money and maybe they learn something and it's, it's not that bad. But when it's forced on us, then if we're forced to use the inferior thing, then that's really deadly. And then we're talking about something really deadly with the fundamental area of our economy, which is is energy. So speaking of that, Don, um, what did you have this week about the divestment movement? Yes, the divestment movement was this movement started by Bill McKibben of uh, 350.org in, I think, 2013. It's the idea that they're going to copy- 2000, kind of 2012, I remember well, because I, I debated him after, prompted by his manifesto. On that, so it's 2012. Yeah, and so he basically wants to copy the playbook that was used against our apartheid and against other other unpopular industries, and to try to convince investors to divest from fossil fuel companies. And at, at least the beginning, like I don't think it was taken very seriously by the industry. And I mean, there's even some sense that I think a, a lot of the people involved in the divestment movement, it was mostly a PR campaign to try to smear and make the industry look bad. But now McKibben's writing, um, you know, what, seven years later and making the argument that actually it's been extremely successful. And so he says that you know, in the coal industry, the coal industry itself and investment banks are citing it as a reason for coal's decline. And he says it's starting to have an impact on oil and gas with Shell listing it as a material risk in its business. And the uh, the basic financial argument, which McKibben reiterates, is this idea that I, I touched on a few minutes ago, which is that fossil fuel companies are overvalued because they have all these stranded assets that we're not going to let them develop because of climate restrictions and that they that we won't want them to develop because of the inevitability of solar and wind and so investors should divest both for this moral reason that fossil fuels are destroying the planet and for this financial reason that it's going to be bad for you if you have a bunch of fossil fuels in your in your portfolio because like these companies are just headed uh, for doom and it's not being recognized by the market. And um, the one the one issue that I thought is uh, I'd like to raise with you guys is um, what I've when I've seen the responses to this from the industry, mostly of what you get are these studies that are just focused on. Well, in the past, if you had divested, your fund would have underperformed. And it just strikes me that like that is like that's relevant. It's not an awful point to make, but it's so far from what's going on here, which is trying to smear the industry as villains and saying like you're in the same category as people who've institutionalized racist policies and like nobody should even touch you because you're destroying the planet. Like that is such a powerful narrative and to focus on like hey, but don't you want the financial returns? Just to me, it seems like it's missing the mark, to put it gently. And just think about the self-esteem or lack thereof that's projected when somebody says, you know, 
to a company or to an industry, you're evil. Therefore, people should have nothing to do with you and take their money away from you. And then you say, oh, no, don't do that because you'll actually uh, lose a little bit of money by believing that I'm evil. The, I mean, imagine you said that to Ocasio-Cortez, you called her evil. Like, would she give some sort of justification like that? No, she'd say, no, I'm good. And I think she's wrong. But, but people, if you're doing the right thing, then you should, you should be angry and indignant when people mischaracterize you because it's injustice. And if you don't think it's an injustice to say that you're destroying the planet, then you should switch industries. A kind of a fundamental point that comes up a lot in our work with uh, companies, because Center for Industrial Progress, our, our goal is to clarify industrial and environmental issues, above all, using a human flourishing-based framework. And part of the way we do that is talking directly to ambitious citizens like the listeners of this program. But another way we do it is by helping companies that we agree with on policy make a more persuasive human flourishing-based case for what they do. So we're very proud of that. Some people think that's some, like, some secret shame, but no, for us, that's, that's a really good thing is to help, to help companies who are doing the right thing and advocating for the right thing be more persuasive. If we don't work with companies when they are advocating the wrong thing or, or doing the wrong thing in a way that's relevant to how we're trying to help them. And people are always, people always think of persuasion in terms of tactics and tricks. And okay, what do I say to get these people to like me? How do I win hearts and minds? And the fundamental is decide for yourself. If you think you're doing the right thing, why do you believe it? Why should anyone believe it? What is actually true? So in, in the case of the fossil fuel industry, what are the actual benefits of using fossil fuels going forward? What are the actual risks of fossil fuels going forward? What, given those, what are the right practices and policies going forward? And then if, if you believe like we do, that one of the top priorities in the world has to be getting more energy to more people because energy is a fundamental need and because 3 billion people have virtually none of it. If you think that, and you also think that the fossil fuel industry is uniquely good at producing cheap, plentiful, reliable energy on a scale of billions and no other industry comes close in terms of producing it on, on that scale at the right price in all the different ways we need energy from electricity to liquid fuel to heating and industrial uses and the kinds of things Bill Gates talked about um, in the earlier segment. If, if you believe that, and then you also believe that the abundant energy that fossil fuel makes possible for billions of people is also crucial for improving our environment, including taking the naturally dangerous climate, however we're impacting it or not, and making it safe. If you believe that it's essential for environmental quality and climate livability, and then also you look at the impact on climate and you think that the um, that there's probably some warming influence, but it's not at all massive or catastrophic and certainly nothing that uh, a high-powered technological society can't deal with. If you think, if that's your actual assessment of the benefits and risks, then you should be in favor of ener of liberating fossil fuels and other forms of energy. And that's that's our perspective. And you should say, look, this is my goal. I want human beings to flourish as much as possible. And here's why I think that's, that's my 100. I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more with the Green New Deal, but that's my ideal. And then I really think this is the best way to get there. And, and I think that what what is right should be the foundation of persuasion. And then a lot of persuasion is just figuring out a way to um, say that given certain parameters, including, okay, certain audience and certain time constraints and certain media. But priority number one is get clear for yourself on what is right and why. And so often people in communications skip that step and therefore, often you have people in the energy industry helping fossil fuel companies with this stuff who don't even believe it themselves. And I have I have a line that I use, which is a, it's kind of a marketing line for us, but it's it's true, which is how do you expect these people 
to persuade anyone about the goodness of your industry when they haven't even persuaded themselves. So the first, the first place to look when dealing with a challenging communication situation is inward, is to say, well, inward in terms of, of what do I actually think? What do I actually believe? And have the conviction that if you believe something and therefore really good reasons that also apply to the lives and values of the people you're talking to, that you'll be able to do that. And don't, don't be cynical and say, well, I'm just going to come up with some manipulation because people would never believe the truth. And usually people who say that, they don't, they're not even clear on the truth themselves. They often just, they have some sort of motivation like, well, I happen to be in this industry and I haven't really thought it through, but I'm pretty sure it's right. And besides, you know, I need to keep the company going. So people, developing that core conviction is just um, everything. Now, let's jump into Green New Deal. And I'll just, I'll just ask Don, because I know you track these things a lot. How big an issue has this been in the last several weeks, at least for my part, in terms of emails I'm getting uh, and the extent to which I read the news, which is not nearly as much as you or Stefan do, but I'm just seeing it everywhere. What's what's your take on just how how big this is becoming? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the new framework for the Greens. It's uh, uh, some polls have shown that like it markets above fifty percent popularity as a concept, even among so-called climate skeptics. Which is that? Know, is that the Green New Deal, or is that a hundred percent renewable? Those those two are very linked. Yeah, I forget which one that study is, but they but they're both. I mean, it's it, they're really equivalent so far. Um, the Green New Deal is supposed to include kind of more, you know, more items than 100% renewable, but that's really the centerpiece of it. And it's it's that you know you have this slogan that's capturing we have this kind of positive agenda of we're going to give us 100% renewable energy and w- leading with that kind of positive, albeit absurdly vague vision has become like the the left is not actually talking about carbon tax anymore now that the republicans have started to embrace it in many quarters like they've moved on to this idea of a green new deal and it's kind of the central discussion and everybody's kind of waiting with bated breath to find out what it actually is um and and so yeah i mean it's it's everywhere and i think it's going to be kind of the key platform for many of the 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 let's call it the biggest media stars in government right now over the next couple of years. So let me give my framework for thinking about this as a persuasive device, and then I'll talk about it as a a nightmarish political um, proposal. By the way, I don't know if anyone can hear. Uh, there are I, I'm I'm in Laguna Beach, and there are a lot of dogs around here, and some dogs seem to have figured out how to penetrate the uh, these the glass that I of the windows that I'm I'm next to. So I apologize if you hear that. Nobody is being tortured. They're just some cranky dogs. Anyway, um, I have a term that I've coined and developed over the past several years, which I call arguing to 100. And I can get the visual of this, if you just draw a line on a piece of paper and in the middle of the line, a horizontal line, I should say, write zero, and then on the right side, write 100, on the the left side, write negative 100. And you can think of this as a moral x-axis. So negative 100 is the lowest evil, and 100 is the highest good. And my view is that in just about every discussion, the way that discussion proceeds depends on how 100 and negative 100 are defined, and that what great communicators do is that they define, or at least very persuasive people, they will define 100, and then they'll argue that their policy is the best way to get there. Then they'll define negative 100, and then they'll say that their opponent's policies are bringing us to negative 100. And I'll give you an example in the context of national politics, which is that Donald Trump's Make America Great Again. I remember when he was talking about his campaign early on, one reason I thought, oh, this might, guy might actually win is he said early on, you know, we've got, he was talking about his assets in the campaign. And one of the main things he mentioned was make America great again, just that as the campaign slogan. 
And people probably thought that was superficial in a certain way. You could say it's superficial, but I thought immediately, oh, this guy has a 100. And what he really did, what, and leaving aside the merits or not of this, just as a persuasion device, what he did was he framed the debate with 100 as American greatness and negative 100 as American decline. And before Trump came along, I think the dominant framework in the US was a 100 of equality and a negative 100 of inequality. And what Trump did is, is instead of just playing that game, he defined a new lowest evil and a new highest good. And therefore, he, he framed the debate and then everyone had to react to him. And what we in the energy debate, the way it's been framed historically and the way it's being framed in this Green New Deal is that 100 is green energy and that negative 100 is more fossil fuel energy. And my, my fundamental approach to reframing it is that no, green, any form of green should never be 100 since that's a minimal human impact on the planet, which is a, that's a very bad ideal. What we want is we want maximum human flourishing. So our, our 100 should always be some form of maximum human flourishing. So in the context of energy, it might be we want the best energy or we want cheap, plentiful, reliable, safe energy. But it, it needs to be all about, we need to have a positive defined and the positive should be some, uh, some form of human flourishing. Now, if we look at, we'll leave aside the Green New Deal for a second. If we just look at what's actually needed in terms of human flourishing and specifically American flourishing in the form of energy, in the domain of energy, particularly if you look at struggling Americans today, the number one priority or close to number one priority is productivity. What really material flourishing requires is greater and greater productivity. And there are real concerns that a lot of people have about, will I be able to be productive in the future? There's this kind of thinking of, will I be replaced by a machine? And that's not the right way of thinking about it. But there are people very legitimately concerned about, will I be able to be productive in the future for a whole host of reasons, including a really bad educational system? And thus, anyone who's talking about the welfare of Americans going forward, they should really be focused on productivity. And another word for that is empowerment. We should be thinking about how do we empower Americans? And the, the, so I, I'd say we need an American empowerment plan. And fundamental to that is a plan for America being a leading producer of cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. I mean, if you want to talk about making people more productive, more empowered, more prosperous, more flourishing, we want to be the world's leader at cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. Now, what does this Green New Deal say? Well, it says that we should mandate 100% renewable. It's not even 100% non-carbon. They're against new hydro and they're against nuclear, which is by far the best, most scalable non-carbon source. So it's it's so dogmatic that they're saying we, we only want to use uh, new energy sources from the sun and the wind. And this is this is such a bad idea for reasons that we've discussed with the um, the points Bill Gates made, the suffering that's that's occurring in France with just a tiny tiny move in this 100% renewable direction. And we're talking about something that has never been done, and that when it's done on a small scale, is is catastrophic or is, is really really harmful. So it's it's really a nightmare scenario. But I think the the key thing is we need to view it. In, the, in relation to the goal of empowerment and productivity. And from the, that perspective, we're, instead of going in the direction of more cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, we're, we're going in a very regressive direction. We're going for um, expensive, scarce, unreliable energy. And that should, that, that's really, really bad, but it's only bad if we have an idea of what good is. So what, I, what I'd really like to see from, in this case, Republicans, or I mean, I hope Democrats too, who oppose Ocasio-Cortez and, and that cabal is having a positive vision for something like an American empowerment plan and then showing how 
this is this is taking America backward. So if, if you wanted a real slogan for the Green New Deal, it, it would be make America poor again. Because that's what it is. America used to be poor, right? Before we had industrial revolution and fossil fuels, we were super poor. We're poorer than African countries today. And this is basically saying, let's have an energy policy that makes us poor again. Um, and there are a lot of a lot of interesting questions about exactly how to frame this. But my number one point is just recognize that if you let the side that frames the debate is going to win the debate. And right now, to allow somebody to frame the debate around the world's worst energy sources is a big problem. So we need to have a positive vision where we have truly great energy that makes possible um, true greatness, not in terms of superiority necessarily, but like true greatness in terms of a prosperous society. And for America to... For America to mandate the world's worst energy sources, like what could possibly put us in more jeopardy? What could possibly be worse for poor Americans? What could possibly be worse for jobs, for productivity, for the military? Um, one subject I might discuss next week or soon is this idea that you hear from Bernie Sanders and others that there's a that climate change is a military imperative that we should treat it like a war. Well. There's so many problems with that. One is that Bernie Sanders and people like that are pacifists and their usual response to people attacking us is to just blame ourselves and to have no coherent response and to hope that they stop attacking us. So I wish they had that attitude toward fossil fuels where they, they didn't have a real response to fossil fuels. But in terms of you want to talk about military, what is more important to military considerations than fossil fuels because fossil fuels allow us to be a prosperous country that can build a great military. And in the form of oil, they provide the key to actual fighting, which requires bringing a lot of power to a remote location. And the book, The Prize by Dan Jurgen, illustrates this, which shows World War I and World War II had a huge component of being won by the side with the most access to oil. So the idea that the way America is going to proceed now is we're going to we're going to disempower ourselves in a literal way, and that's the vision. Again, that that's like make America poor again, and and in a world with all the dangers today, that's that's a really scary kind of prospect. All right, I want to try to keep this to around an hour, so let's jump into the last. Uh, story, and then anyone can make any final comments. Don, tell me about this. You had, I think it was a story from Vox.com. I forget the details. What what was that story? Well, I mean, the, the, it's a perfect lead-in from what we've been talking about. The title, this is by David Roberts. It's titled, The Best Way to Reduce Your Personal Carbon Emissions, Don't Be Rich. And I'll just read the key quote that really captures the essence of what he's arguing. And he says, <clears throat> Climate change is primarily being driven by the behavior of the world's wealthy. And then it's – I'm skipping a little bit. He says, for now and for the foreseeable future, carbon emissions rise with wealth. The obvious and most direct approach to addressing the role of individual choices in climate change is to tax the consumption choices of the wealthy. And it's important to realize like if you read the article, Roberts is a little bit ambiguous at different points about who he means by the wealthy – Sometimes he seems to be talking about super rich Americans, but he, he also says that the when he talks about the world's wealthy, um, that the 10% of the wealthiest people in China emit less carbon than the people at the bottom half of the wealth distribution in the US. So he's really talking about the world's wealthy, the people in the wealthy nations. And so what he's really arguing is not that Bill Gates is too wealthy for the health of the planet, but that a Walmart employee in rural Michigan is too wealthy for the health of the planet and saying that, like, look, to fight climate change, what really matters is that people not be wealthy. I mean, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a combination. And I think in that article, if I remember correctly, he addresses the issue of having kids and that people say that, hey, if you want to, quote unquote, fight climate change, let's say if you want to reduce CO2 emissions, you shouldn't have kids. And that's that's an obvious kind of thing. I mean, the, what, what could you do that's worse for t CO2 emissions than self-replicate one or more times? Now, people rebel against that legitimately because there's something wrong. There's something anti-human about saying we shouldn't have kids. But And so Roberts is 
trying to get around that. But then what is he saying? He's saying we shouldn't be rich, but by rich, he means at all prosperous, and which really means we shouldn't flourish. And so what's, what's happening is there's a recognition that CO2 emissions are incredibly correlated to human productivity and human prosperity and human flourishing. And people are telling us it's your obligation to take action to reduce those emissions, and that should be your top priority. Your top priority should be to reduce something dramatically that's directly correlated with your flourishing. Now, notice this is different than the Bill Gates approach, which is to say, no, we absolutely need to flourish. We need a lot of energy. So like, let's have a lot of innovation so that we can reduce CO2 emissions over time. Again, Gates and I have different assessments of the significance of CO2 and, and the problems involved in CO2, but that's at least an honest, it's not just an honest thing, it's a pro-human perspective. And that's what's so missing. People, there's this idea that, I think there's an assumption that everyone is pro-human, that everyone cares about human flourishing. And one of the more I think about these issues and particularly working on the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0, the more I think, no, it is such an achievement to consistently care about human flourishing and to have a really clear hierarchy in one's mind about, okay, that human flourishing is at the top. And if I'm concerned about CO2 emissions, that's a derivative concern. That's an aspect of human flourishing. But I can never, I can never take my eye off human flourishing as the goal. And when I'm considering trade-offs, I need to make those trade-offs in accordance with human flourishing versus saying, no, the overwhelming goal is we want to radically reduce CO2 levels. And if that means that you shouldn't have kids, maybe that makes it a little uncomfortable, but no big problem there. Or if you believe, um, if you believe that prosper that prosperity needs to dramatically decline, no problem there. If you have an, a set of ideas that says that today's people need to be dramatically less prosperous, there's something wrong with your way of thinking. Uh, Stefan, since you haven't jumped in for a while, any any final thoughts on that before we wrap up? I, I think the the ultimate conclusion uh, of these. Uh these uh, reduction schemes by the Greens is a footprint of zero, which means you shouldn't exist. That seems to me the, the ultimate conclusion. So being in sort of energy ascetic to the point where you don't do anything. And that's, uh, that's, as you said, fundamentally the difference between the approach of Bill Gates, who is looking to a, for a solution that allows us to, to advance and be more prosperous and you know, poor people, especially being more prosperous in the third world. And, uh, yeah, the green scheme of just having less, living with less and, and doing less and not flourishing. Yeah. And, th and that, that is an ideal that really the ideal is their, the ideal of their 100 of a hundred percent green, like a hundred percent green means a hundred percent zero impact which means zero human existence. When your ideal is zero human existence, you have a problem. And it's not a solution to the problem to say, oh, we don't take our ideal to extremes. No, you need a new ideal. You should have an ideal that to the extent you pursue it, life gets better. You shouldn't have an ideal that to the extent you pursue it, life ceases to exist. And if if you hear someone voicing an idea like green and you, you look at the implications and you see that it's anti-human, don't voice it. Don't reinforce it. Reframe the discussion, not just to be more persuasive, although that's true. It's, it's, that is the right thing to do. And so this, again, links together. The way to be persuasive in a constructive sense is to get really clear for yourself on what's right and then articulate that as sincerely as possible to others. And hopefully we've done at least some of that today. Thanks to Don and Stefan for joining me. Now, we're going to definitely would always like feedback, as I like to say, questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail. You can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don, you can do don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan, which is S-T-E-F-F-E-N at industrialprogress.net. So feel free to send us feedback uh, on the new format, what you like, what we don't, what you don't like because we want to do more of this, but we want to do it in a form that's really useful to people. Now, one uh, other thing that I haven't mentioned in the past, but that I want to start mentioning is that 
if you're interested in supporting this program, we don't have any kind of donation and I don't know if we'll ever set that up, but if you really want to support our work, by far the best thing you can do, or, or besides just sharing it with people, which is great, is if you are connected to any high-level speaking events to recommend us as speakers or to feature us as speakers. That is, speaking as a big source of revenue for us, is a big source of influence for us, and allows us to reach a lot of high-level people in an efficient way. So if, you're, if you have any ideas, you can email us about it or just go to industrialprogress.com speaking and you can set up a conversation with Don and he can tell you about all of our different speakers that we now have. And it's a pretty cool lineup. Maybe we'll have some of the others on the show in the future. All right, guys, thanks for coming on this week. Thanks for having me. Yep, thanks, Alex. And thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.